Hey everybody, this is Chris, the public safety guru, bringing you a lecture on cardiovascular emergencies. So put on your thinking cap, get your pencil and paper, and let's learn how we respond to emergencies of the corazón. Uh, actually, the heart. So for some review, we're going to talk about cardiac function. Cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate. Need to remember that. Cardiac output equals stroke volume and heart rate. Or stroke volume times heart rate. Blood pressure equals cardiac output times peripheral vascular resistance. Blood pressure equals cardio cardiac output times peripheral vascular resistance. And since we're dealing with the heart, we're going to be talking about hypoperfusion or simply shock, which is widespread inadequate blood flow. These are things that should just be coming to you second nature now. And as we learned just a few lectures ago, airway and oxygenation is critical. Without airway, forget it. There's nothing else that we can do for this person. If you're new to this podcast, I'm going to tell you to click your browsers on over to www dot the public safety guru dot com. Um, this is a work of art, or I should say this is a work in progress to provide people in public safety or those wanting to join public safety um, information that they may need to be successful. But in that, there is a form section that I upload occasional PDFs that would help you with these podcasts. So for this podcast, I will be updating um, essentially how the blood flows through the body. It's it just a, it's very simplified. It should be up there either by, um, you, by the time you're listening to this lecture or shortly thereafter. So stay tuned. If it's not there, just keep checking back. One of the important things that you can do as an EMT is learning the various coronary arteries. Once again, I challenge my students to go online and get a diagram. I will be putting these diagrams um, on the form section of the website very soon. But for now, you need to know the structures of the aortic valve, the right coronary artery, the right atrium, the right ventricle, the left coronary artery, the left atrium, the anterior descending branch, and the left ventricle. Now, you're not going to be tested on this stuff per se, but understanding where these structures are, especially the atriums and ventricles, is very important to know as an EMT. This is what separates a good EMT from a great EMT. Now let's talk about cardiac conduction. We have several pacemakers in our heart that set the heart rate for us. The number one pacemaker for us is the SA node, and it's located just above the right atrium. When it fires, it fires its electricity across the heart causing the heart to beat. Now, we have learned that we have fail-safe systems inside of our body that are backups. So if the SA node, the sinoatrial node, gives up, then the AV node will take over and provide us our pacemaking capabilities. If that fails, then the Pekinji fibers will take over. Now, there are we, we still have the bundle of Hiss. We have the internodal pathway. We have various different things, but from the EMT perspective, you need to understand that we are getting our heart rate from the sinoatrial node, the SA node, followed by the AV node, and then the Bukinji fibers, okay? That's what you need to know. Now, at the paramedic level, this will play an important role as 
this firing of the SA node, it pretty much sets what we see on the EKG monitor. So we see that formation of the P wave, then the QRS, and you're gonna hear stuff about ST segment and so forth. I always challenge my EMTs that when they finally graduate and are certified through National Registry, go back and take a 12 lead EKG class. This will help you to start understanding what the paramedics are looking at, as well as you'll learn how to put a 12 lead on, and you'll have some understanding re regarding the various different arrhythmias and dysrhythmias of the heart. One of the things that affects all of us, and it's just dependent on some various different issues, but is coronary artery disease. Over time, plaque will begin to build up inside of our arteries, and dependent on how we respond to that plaque will depend on the CAD that we have in our bodies. What CAD is doing, or we should say what is the plaque doing, is the plaque is actually making our arteries more narrow, thus reducing the amount of blood that is efficiently pumped throughout the body. Now there are some risk factors which are uncontrollable and controllable that deal with coronary artery syndromes or acute coronary syndromes. So what are those risk factors? Well, the ones that we cannot change are the uncontrollable, the unmodifiable. That is your age, your sex, your race, and your family history. There is nothing obviously we can do about those. Now, the ones that are controllable or modifiable are hypertension. We can control our hypertension. Diet. Absolutely. Our diet is 110%, or I should say there is no such thing as 110%, is 100% up to us. Obesity, smoking, excessive alcohol use, stress, high blood sugar, and physical inactivity. These are all things we could control. Now, what I like to tell my EMT students in my class is this, is that no matter what, we cannot stop ourselves from getting old. So as an EMT, when I was a young EMT, I found myself eating like crap, eating at Burger King, McDonald's, Taco Bell, all those various fast food places because it was just simple and easy. That's going to take its toll during your career. So I caution you on that because once again, eating like that is going to cause your diet to be bad, which is going to make you obese. That's going to lead to hypertension. It's already a stressful occupation, so you're going to have that high blood sugar. And then sitting around for 10 to 12 hours in an ambulance is not good physical activity. So these are things that you need to control now if you want to be healthy when you get older. 7.8 million Americans seek treatment for chest discomfort each year. 2 million will be compromised. 1.5 million will have heart attacks. 500,000 will die with over 250,000 dying within the first hour of onset or chest pain. These are numbers that are according to the American Heart Association. So our management of this cardiac compromise, these are our goals. Oxygen, if needed. We want to decrease the workload of the heart and we want to minimize and prevent further damage to the heart. Now, the thing with chest pain, especially over my 30 years of being in EMS, is that no one really chest pain looks the same. Everybody 
has their different areas where their chest pain is originating from. Some people will radiate to their, their back, their neck, their jaw, their arms. Some will describe it as a heartburn or indigestion. Some people will have just left arm pain. It'll be described as a pressure squeezing or crushing pain. So we have to take a look at all of these and the other signs and symptoms to determine what is truly going on with our patient. But remember this, for simplicity's sake, chest pain is chest pain. That is it. I don't care if it's angina chest pain or MI chest pain. Our treatment is going to be the same. Now we teach you what's the difference between an angina and a heart attack because we just don't want you being trained monkeys out there. That's not your goal. Your goal is to understand the pathophysiology of what is happening with your patient's condition so that way you could understand why you're performing certain treatments on them. Now in chest pain, one of the things you can do as the EMT is assist the patient with their prescribed nitroglycerin. You need to know the indications, the contraindications, the dose, the side effects, and when you reassess. So let's talk about those indications. The indications are chest pain. So the chest pain could be MI related or it can be angina related. But regardless, since we don't know, we're going to go ahead and assist our patient with their nitroglycerin. Now the contraindications are what? Let's think about that. You've already learned this. So it's a blood pressure less than 100. They've already taken three doses because remember, that's all we're allowed to give is three doses. So we don't get three doses and they get three doses. It's three doses total. The next one is if they've taken any sexually enhancement drugs within the last 24 to 72 hours. Those are the magic numbers. Now, as far as dose, dose could be one single spray of liquid nitroglycerin or one tablet underneath the tongue for their nitroglycerin. Side effects, the number one side effect is a headache as well as a drop in blood pressure. Now remember this for testing purposes. If you have a scenario where you give your patient nitroglycerin and all of a sudden they become lightheaded or their blood pressure drops significantly, you are to lay them down, lie them down, whatever the proper English of lay and lie is, okay? Put them down on supine. We do stuff. We just don't let them sit there and be in agony with a low blood pressure, okay? So we do something. So putting, lying them head down is going to help to relieve, hopefully, that hypotension. And since we are going to consider this a critical patient, we reassess critical patients every five minutes. As well as if you wanted to give that second dose of nitroglycerin, you need to reassess your patient's blood pressure every five minutes prior to giving that next dose. We can also give or help our patients with their prescribed aspirin. Now, the aspirin does not need to come in a prescription bottle. Most doctors will prescribe aspirin to their patients as part of their chest pain, pain management, but patients are told to go buy their aspirin at Target or whatever, you know, CVS, whatever store they can get regular aspirin at. The reason why is that many manufacturers now make a half dose of aspirin as well as a full, full dose of aspirin for patients. Now we're going to talk about specific cardiovascular emergencies. We're going to talk about angina pectoris, myocardial infarction, acute dissecting aortic aneurysm, 
However, in this lecture, we will not talk about CHF. We'll touch a little bit on it, but we're going to mostly refer to our respiratory emergency lecture regarding congestive heart failure. So what is angina? Angina is a temporary inadequate oxygen supply to the heart muscle. Essentially, oxygen demand exceeds supply. Anaerobic metabolism and acid buildup leads to the pain. So what I want you to wrap your head around on this one is, imagine this, the heart is getting oxygen to all parts, just not enough. We have overexerted ourselves and the heart saying, hey, I need some more O2, but it's not getting it. So it sends you that signal of pain. That pain is designed to stop you in your tracks, hopefully rest, so that way the heart can catch up to what the body is asking for it in regards to oxygen. That's what that's about. Normally, angina is caused by some type of exertion. So the thing to remember, though, the difference between angina and a myocardial infarction, heart attack slash MI, is that angina, the heart, is getting fed oxygen, just not enough. In an MI, we have a patient patient's heart or a piece of their heart dying, it's not getting any oxygen, and that pain is coming from actual tissue death. That is the difference between the two. Signs and symptoms of angina are the following. If we're going to be using our PPQRRRST uh, acronym, so P, provoked, usually exertion or increased heart rate. Palliation, <clears throat> excuse me, palliation, what makes it feel better? Well, nitroglycerin, rest, Oxygen, if they're hypo, hypoxemic. Quality, described as crushing pressure, vice-like. Region is usually substernal or midsternal. Radiation, upper thorax can go to the left arm, the left jaw. Classic, but is atypical in women, diabetics, and elderly. Talk a little bit about that. People who have a history of diabetes their nerve endings are not as sensitive as ours are. So their pain is more dull. That should be a sign where you, if you have somebody who is in uh, having chest pain and they have diabetes, you need to kind of think about that their chest pain may be much worse because their nerve endings are not as sensitive. Um, reoccurrence, yes, it's possible that these patients have been living with angina pain back and forth, hence the reason why a doctor is most likely prescribed them nitroglycerin. Severity, it could be anything from mild to moderate. I've even had severe chest pain. So remember, this is all relative and it's all up to the patient scoring their pain. Time, usually the chest pain is under 30 minutes. Um, within 5 to 15 minutes, it will subside with rest. That's why one of the most important things that we can do as EMTs when we respond to someone's house that's having chest pain is get them to relax, loosen that constrictive clothing, uh, reassure them, and then maybe possibly help them with their nitroglycerin or, nitroglycerin or aspirin administration. Now let's flip to the one that kills, myocardial infarction, heart attack, MI. This is a sudden blockage of the coronary artery with prolonged ischemia. Remember, ischemia, no oxygen. It interferes with cardiac function, and the resulting or the result of this is tissue death of the myocardium. So myocardial tissue, cardiac muscle is dying, and that's where the pain is coming from. 
This is something that the EMT slash paramedic is not going to be able to fix. Now, we're trying to reduce damage here. And in angina, we can actually take away the effects of angina through helping the patient with their nitroglycerin, their aspirin, and their oxygen and rest. That can definitely help them. However, in an MI, our job here is to actually just reduce the damage because this person either needs some type of stent, cath lab, um, STEMI center. So those, we're, our job is just to stabilize, reduce the damage, and get them to the real people who are going to be able to fix them. What are the signs and symptoms with an MI? Well, for provoked, it's going to be maybe nothing. These are the people that all of a sudden acute onset chest pain. They can even be sleeping and be awakened from a deep sleep with their chest pain. Palliation. And what makes it feel better? Nothing. Nothing by the EMT at least. Quality. Crushing pressure. Vice-like. So you can see that it's almost the same. Region. Ooh, wow. Substernal, midsternal. So we're kind of like, this is the reason why, ladies and gentlemen, that we treat chest pain as chest pain because we really don't know the etiology of its origins. Radiation. Upper thorax. Reoccurrence, possible, but remember, people can have a first-time heart attack and have never experienced this before. Severity is usually a moderate to severe. However, remember, there could be that silent MI. In other words, the patient does not know they're having a heart attack. I'll tell a brief story about an elderly woman I had. My partner Frank and I responded to a woman's house who had been gardening during a warm spring day. Her only sign and symptom of anything being wrong is that she had profuse sweating. Her skin was warm. She was just sweaty, but she had good skin color. Vital signs were stable. EKG, normal sinus rhythm, nothing is going on. The sweating concerned me. I asked her, ma'am, I really want to take you to the hospital. Are you willing to go? She did not want to go to the hospital. We took us at least 10 minutes to finally convince her just to go. When we got to the back doors of the ambulance, or the back doors of the hospital, and we opened up those doors of the ambulance, all of a sudden her EKG rhythm changed right there, and boom, she was in. I was able to tell that she was having the big one. She was having a heart attack. I... Unfortunately, sometimes we just don't find out if our patients survive or don't survive and just because we go from one call to the next, but I'd like to think in my head that she survived. But I do know one thing. If I would have left her there just sweating, she would have definitely been found dead in her home because of what was going on with her heart. She was having a silent heart attack. It just that just didn't make itself known for about 15 to 20 minutes after she had dialed 911. Nice to know what are complications of an MI. Well, heart failure, CHF, and acute pulmonary edema. Usually these occur days after the person having an MI. Uh, cardiogenic, cardiogenic shock, and then cardiac arrest, which sudden death. The most common dysrhythmia that people die from is ventricular fibrillation, VFib. Now, if you're in my class, you've heard me talk about CHF, congestive heart failure. We're going to talk about this during your respiratory lecture, but just understand that left and right-sided heart failure could possibly lead to RCHF. You need to understand the path of blood flow that will help you to determine if your patient's in either right heart failure or left heart failure. I'm hoping to have that diagram uploaded here very soon. Let's talk treatment of angina and myocardial infarction, MI. The best part about this, just like we were talking about, we don't know the difference. Well, I do because I have an EKG monitor, but 
we're going to treat them the same. That's the cool part about the EMT level of treatment. So we don't have to remember two different algorithms for treatment. So let's talk about your treatment for the angina MI patient. So number one, rest and reassure the patient as you're performing the initial assessment. Place the patient in a position of comfort. Loosen restrictive clothing, please. If there's no shortness of breath and a pulse ox is available, then if we have anything below 94, we're not going to, I mean, below 94, we're going to give oxygen. Above 94, no oxygen. Now, if there is no pulse ox available, you as the EMT need to look for signs of hypoxia. If you have signs of hypoxia, give high flow O2, 12 to 15 liters by mask. And then while we're waiting for the paramedics to get there, obtain a history and do a physical exam. That is your treatment, ladies and gentlemen. And continuing with the questions that we'll be asking our patients, remember, we're going to use OPQRST. We're going to obviously look for signs of shortness of breath, examine the patient's neck for JVD, ankles for edemia. If they're bedridden, look for some sacral edemia. We're going to get some baseline vital signs. Utilize sample as necessary. Administer or assist with the administration of any nitroglycerin as appropriate. Consider giving them 81 milligrams of aspirin or 264, dependent on your local protocols. And they say that we be sh- we should be transporting these patients code 2. Eh, that's kind of subjective. I was a big code 3 fan because my thing was I just wanted to get my patients to the hospital. But this is going to be based upon your local protocol and your ambulance company policies. The last emergency we're going to talk about is the acute aortic aneurysm. A AAA is the defect in the wall of the aorta leading to shearing and a balloon effect which obstructs blood flow. The risk factors are hypertensive males between the ages of 40 and 70, connective tissue disease, and blunt force trauma. Now for testing purposes, if you ever have a, a test question that uses the word tearing to describe chest pain, your answer is dissecting, dissecting aortic aneurysm, aortic aneurysm, AAA, but it has to have the word aortic aneurysm in it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, tearing pain is only associated with a AAA. Now, let's talk about the signs and symptoms. The provoking factor can be heavy lifting or straining. Nothing's going to make this feel better. The pain will be described as a ripping or tearing. The region of the pain could be the chest, abdomen, or back. Radiation, front to back. Reoccurrence, uh, hopefully not. Severity, severe, right from the onset. There is no middle ground with this one. And time, minutes to hours. Now, when we finally get these patients, the other thing I want you to remember about this is during transportation, these people will be transported supine. We are going to try to relieve the tension in the abdomen as we do not want the aorta to tear away from the wall. Supine is our position of transport. Also, what we're looking for in this is if you have a patient that's presenting with these signs and symptoms, you need to take a blood pressure in both arms. You're most likely going to see a difference between the left and right arm. This is another tall tale sign that someone's having a AAA. With that, the associated signs and symptoms of a AAA are unequal radial or femoral pulses, unequal blood pressures, a possible pulsating mass in their abdomen, 
and they're going to be in shock slash hypoperfusion. So remember, tearing pain, AAA, we transport them supine, unequal blood pressures in arms is usually an indicative sign of a AAA. The overall treatment with the AAA is airway first, high flow oxygen, so this could be a non-rebreather mask, and if necessary, you may have to do manual ventilations via positive pressure ventilation slash BVM. Reassure the patient, supine position, treat for shock as needed, and this is a rapid transport to the hospital. This is that wild Mr. Toad's wild ride to the hospital. Eh, just kidding, but not so much. This is a scary call. I do want to touch a little basis because we've talked about it, hypertensive emergencies. Hypertensive emergencies involve any systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or a rapid increase in systolic pressure. So an example could that uh, an example of a hypertensive crisis could be 200 over 120. Those are not good numbers to have. A sudden severe headache is a common sign. And then other symptoms include the following. Strong bounding pulse, ringing in the ears, dizziness, warm skin, maybe dry or moist, a nosebleed, altered mental status, and possible stroke. Once again, with hypertension, we don't have anything that we can really give our patients to bring their blood pressure down. So this is where we deal with the ABCs, provide oxygen as needed, and transport to the hospital because this is something that a doctor is going to need to fix. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our lecture on cardiac emergencies. Have a good day.